Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of Harper Audio Presents, recorded at the American Booksellers Association's Winter Institute in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Winter Institute is a gathering of independent booksellers, publishers, and authors. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is... Hi, my name is Kim Scott, and I am the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. The book is being published by St. Martin's Press, and it goes on sale March 14th. Kim Scott is the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim is also co-founder of Candor, Inc., which builds tools to make it easier to follow the advice she offers in the book. Prior to founding Candor, Inc., Kim was a CEO at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and several other Silicon Valley companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, developing the course Managing at Apple, and before that, led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick Online Sales and Operations at Google. I think the book is fundamentally aimed at people who are just really good, nice people, and therefore, they have a hard time doing what you have to do to be a great boss. And, and what I've tried to do is to show people that you can continue to be that good, kind person and also be a kick-ass boss at the same time. You do, you do set up the premise, though, that the way we are raised, uh, basically to be polite and to be helpful to others, can sometimes be really at odds with being an effective and helpful boss, Yes. Well, so the specific thing that I say in the book is we're all told, or a lot of us are told from the time we're 18 months old, from the time we learn to speak, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Now, I would argue that's not exactly being polite. That's just being mum, right? That's being silent. And there's a difference. You can still be polite and kind and say it. You also give some very, you have the, the first anecdote that's sort of the light bulb that goes off in your head when you're walking your dog. Yes. And your dog nearly um, runs out into the road. Right, because so the dog is it. totally untrained. Belvedere was the dog's name from that cartoon from, you know, Belvedere, come here, boy. <laughs> anyway, she was a girl. And I adored Belvedere. And as a result, I had never really trained her at all, and she was completely out of control. So she almost gets hit by a cab to New York City, and a perfect stranger on the street looks at me, and he says, I can tell you really love that dog. That's all the guy has to do to show his humanity. You know, he doesn't, I call that moving up on the caring personally dimension. He doesn't have to know my name or my kids' names or have taken me out to lunch or bought me drinks or anything like that. I can see you really love that dog. And so now he has me. Now I'm looking at him. Now I'm open to whatever it is he's going to say next. And then he says, but you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach it to sit. Now he really has my attention. Then he kind of points at the ground with a harsh gesticulation. He says, sit. And the dog sat. I had no idea the dog even knew what that meant. And I kind of look at him in amazement. And, and he says to me, the light changes, and he says to me just before he steps off the curb, it's not mean, it's clear. And he walks away, leaving me with words to live by. Now, the moral of this story is not that you should talk to people like he talked to my dog. The point was 
The dog heard it in one way, like saying, sit please, Belvedere, was not going to really help Belvedere understand. So you need to say it in just the way that the person can best understand it. And you also have to have that that moment of humanity or that connection so that they're relaxed enough to hear it also, yes. right? Yeah. If that that's a, you know, like you you say, that, that that's a key component to, yeah. the, to the process. It's it's vital. It's it's Radical candor is very different than brutal honesty or front stabbing or any of these other harsh terms that get bandied about. Radical candor is about being kind and clear at the same time. So talk to us about your, your quadrants. Sure. So there's two dimensions to radical candor. One is caring personally. And, and that's really important. I think too often, no, nobody really starts out their career thinking, I don't care about people, so I'm going to be a great boss, right? That's not how it happens. I think what happens is we think we're supposed to be professional. And we get taught this when we're quite young, when we're 18 years old. And, and so we think that we're supposed to leave our humanity at home, leave the very best part of ourselves at home. And that's all wrong. I would argue you've got to bring your whole self to work and you've got to create an environment in which everyone else can do the same thing. So that's the care personally dimension. That's the give a damn axis, if you will. And then there's also the challenge directly dimension to radical candor. This is what I call the willingness to piss people off, right? Colin Powell said, leadership is often about being willing to piss people off. And when you can do both at the same time, that's radical candor. When you show that you can challenge directly, when you're not afraid to challenge directly, but you fail to show that you care personally, I call this obnoxious aggression. (laughs) A lot of people call this the asshole quadrant, right? (laughs) However, I I didn't name it that because I don't want people to use these terms as labels for other people, right? Use them to guide your conversations with others, not to judge others, right? Now, two two other terms to consider. What happens when you do care personally, but you do not challenge directly? That I call ruinous empathy. And that actually is the mistake that's most often made. That's where 85, 90% of problems occur in the workplace. And then, of course, the worst of all is whether, where, where you neither care nor challenge. And that I call manipulative insincerity. Yeah. Now, one question that I had... I, I, I think you present it so clearly and so helpfully, and, and it's something that one can read and very quickly start to try to practice. But what if you're sort of the only person? I'm sure you've gotten this question yes. before. Like, what if you're the only person that's that's trying to do this and is really making this effort, and and now you you feel very much at odds because you're starting to stick out a little bit. Yeah, you feel sort of out yeah. of step culturally. Yeah, so what, what's your advice for that? So I think especially if you're in a culture that is itself ruinously empathetic, which is often, most often the case, I think simply having a vocabulary to talk about this with others can be extremely helpful. Yeah, okay. So just explain this. Explain this. It's a really simple thing to draw. Like draw a vertical line. That is care personally. Draw a horizontal line. That is challenge directly. And then name each of the quadrants. Radical candor, obnoxious aggression, nobody wants to be there, ruinous empathy. We all know we are kind of there, but we don't really want to be, and, and manipulative insincerity. And if you do that, you'll find that people will often actually adopt these terms yeah, okay. pretty quickly. And they'll tell you, when I was teaching at Apple, I had a lot of managers who told me that 
their employees, once they explained these quadrants to them, would come in and point. I didn't, at Apple, we didn't call it ruinous empathy. I've improved my terms in writing the book. Yay. But they would point at that box and they would say, are you doing that? And then all of a sudden it became way easier to say, to say it really clearly because the person is sort of inviting you to. So I think, I think a shared vocabulary can help I think you're right. enormously. I think you're right. And I, I think people, even just that, I think people overlook that part of managing and team building and culture building, just to sort yeah. of agree on what we mean when we say certain things, yeah. right? Yeah, and being pretty crisp about it. I mean, thinking hard about it. I think also the, the thing I say in the book is don't dish it out until you prove you can take it. Like start by asking for feedback. Don't start by giving it. That's a very and, good point. And, and demonstrating how you, that you think it's a gift, that you really do appreciate it. Of course, you have to get yourself in the right mindset. It's hard to hear sometimes these things that people will tell you when you ask for it. So Okay, so now I'm going to sort of turn that that effort to your writing. So is this, I can't remember, I'm sorry, is this your first book? This is the first book that got published. This is, this is the- Welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah. This, is the, uh, this is the fifth book I wrote. So now you've written a book and now you're going through a review process and you're going through a critique process. Who, who were your readers and, and what was that process like? Wow, so writing the book was in itself uh, an exercise in feedback. I, I wrote the first draft of the book in Google Documents and I think really? I had 100 collaborators. So I was getting feedback from a huge number of people. Uh, and all of it was incredibly valuable. And wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So you <laughs> set it up in Google Docs, and you, mm-hmm. you just say, okay, go in and edit and comment as you see fit. Was there any sort of... Okay, I want you to do it first, second, third, or was it just a complete... It was a free-for-all. Free it was a total free-for-all. It, it, it didn't... I didn't start out thinking I'm going to invite 100 people to edit this talk as I go. But as I was writing, I would have conversations with people, and they had really good ideas, and they seemed interested. And so I would invite them to collaborate on the document. And, and I gave them, I didn't give them edit rights, I gave them suggest rights. Okay. So I, I, I could see what they were doing. They couldn't just change it. Yeah, yeah. I had some editorial control over this thing. But it was really fun. And, you know, funny things happened. For example, an early on in the process, I, called, I was calling the book Cruel Empathy, right? I was so fixated on the ruinous empathy quadrant because that's where so many mistakes get made. And my husband just hated that. So I was getting a lot of, a lot of radical candor from my husband. But he was my husband, and I thought, well, he's an engineer. He's so precise. And what does he know? Yeah, what does he know? <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't listening perhaps as much as I should have. And then I gave a copy of the book to Jack Dorsey, who was then CEO of Square, now CEO of Square on Twitter, to read. And he refused to read the book because he hated, he hated the, the title, title, Cruel Empathy, so much. Like, mm. So between Jack Dorsey and my husband, they convinced me to think harder about the title. And in fact... The book got named on an elevator ride. I would Let's I was, hear the story. Yeah, I was at a conference and I was speaking about radical candor. Only I, I was calling it tough love at that point, which was not that's quite pretty right. good. Yeah, that's was, pretty good, though. Yeah, it, it was basically the idea, but it wasn't very didn't didn't really ring. No, radical candor is definitely better. But <laughs> proceed, yes. And and Dan Pink had had spoken right before me, and he was he said, you know, I really liked your talk. I've been thinking a lot about this. And it's, you know, it's important in editing. And I think he was doing a remodel or something. It's like, it's really important to get anything done. 
And so I said, yeah, and tough love is not right. What should I call it? It's, you know, it's not brutal honesty at all because it's not brutal and honesty is so arrogant and, and maybe candor's better. We just started riffing and he was like, radical candor, that's it. I would read a book called, so he named it really, not wow. me. So I got to give him credit. A lot of, a lot of help writing this book. But, but it's hilarious that, that you invited a hundred people. That's very uncommon. Let me just <laughs> let me just put it that way. It's very. I mean, I know um, we published Jim Collins, and Jim mm-hmm. Collins has a whole sort of review process, and he he invites a lot of lot of input, but it's highly organized and you know step by step. I, I think that's fantastic. Well, I'm a, I'm sort of a a chaotic person. In fact, my nickname at work is Captain Chaos. So <laughs> it's easier for me just to have a free for all. So I'm always curious when people of other industries and other disciplines decide that the thing to do with their valuable time and energy is to craft a book. It's it seems rather it seems rather counterintuitive in this day and age, truthfully. I and mean, we all know how hard it is. So why did you want to write a book in addition to giving your TED talks and speaking at panels and perhaps you know launching the website and all the the great videos that you've produced? Why was a print book important to you? You know, the truth of the matter is my whole business career is really just, it's just like my waitressing gig to support my novel writing habit. Okay, this is very interesting. <laughs> the, the, reason, the, <laughs> the reason why I went to business school was because I thought that if I went to business school, I could sort of make enough money to take a year <laughs> off every so often to write novels, which I knew I knew would never pay really anything and probably would never get published. And in fact, I was, I was right about that. I've, I've written three unpublished novels and, uh, and, and one sort of memoir. And, and so I, I, I decided when I started writing this book, I decided that, that actually my, there, there, was more, there was more integration between my business career and my novel writing habit than I had realized because the, re- the reason why I love to read novels and the reason why I love to write novels is that I'm very interested in sort of how to live and why. Like, how can we, why do, why do some people live so productively and joyfully and other people are buried in misery? And how can we create more productive joy and less misery? And, and what are the things that we ourselves can do? What are the little bitty habits? Yeah, yeah. And that, to me, that's like the, hu- the human drama. And for me, the the, the joy that I took out of my business career was always around coaching and mentoring the yeah. people and, and creating teams and sort of structuring an environment that would get out of people's way so they could do great work and then helping to, to coach them in a way that would help them get out of their own way. And I realized actually the two things were not as different as I thought and that I could write a book that would have as many stories and would feel more like at least a book of short stories than yeah, that's than so, a management book. So that's what I tried to do when I. That's wrote so the interesting. Book. So you've written all your life. Tell me. T- so tell me a little bit about the types of novels that you've written. Sure. Uh, so the first one, the very first one I wrote, was about my early experiences in my career, which took place in Russia. So when I graduated from college, I, I moved to Moscow. I'd studied Russian literature. And, and not knowing what else to do, I went and took a job for $6 a month. <laughs> and, and $6 a month, yeah. people, not an hour, it, but a, a month. month. Yeah, a month. But, you know, you could buy all the food. You, I didn't starve. I didn't eat well. I boiled a lot of potatoes, but I didn't starve that month. 
And, and so I was there from 1990 to 1994, and it was an amazing, incredible experience. And, and then I went off to business school afterwards. And I found right after business school that my sister's a teacher, and I had this, you know, these high-paying business school jobs. And she was dealing with real problems. Like she had a, a kid in her class who who tried to commit suicide. Like She was dealing with real-world, hard, important problems, doing what I considered to be far more important. I was making PowerPoint slides, you know. And, and I, it just bugged me that I was paid so much more than she was to do my unimportant work. And so I, it sort of occurred to me there's this measurement problem. And a lot of what I had seen in Russia was also the measurement problem, that, that capitalism is really good at rewarding what it can measure, and that's actually important, but really bad at rewarding what it values. And so I, I wrote a book about sort of, that was, a, that was the theme. It, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. actually about a, a love triangle that a woman, <laughs> an American woman, not me, not exactly not me either, uh, who moved to Moscow, and she falls in love with a Russian entrepreneur and an American humanitarian aid worker at the same time. And, oh, man, sounds yeah. good. It was fun. It was very fun to write. All right, so I want to ask you a few questions about you as a writer. Okay. Uh, what natural gift would you most like to possess as a writer? Patience. I really, I am an impatient person, and that is what always makes it doesn't actually make the first draft hard because the first draft, there's nothing and then there's something and that feels like progress. But it makes editing really hard. There's this great story about Wordsworth who skipped a family picnic. So eight hours later, his family comes back and they're eager to see the great poem that he's produced in this eight hours. He, you know, he blew them off, it better be good. And he's moved one comma in eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how great writing happens. And, and it's really that for me, I guess that's part of the reason why I invited so many other editors, yeah. right? Because it's so hard for me to find the patience and the discipline to do that, to do that for myself. I always joke that the first hardest, the second hardest thing about writing is getting inside your own head. But the hardest thing is actually getting back out. Yeah, and that's, getting out that's where you need a great editor. That's and Tim true. Bartlett at St. Martin's Press was really a great editor. Fantastic. Enormously. And what do you consider your greatest achievement as a writer? You know, I, I almost consider writing to be like, it's, for me, there's no virtue in it. It's like eating chocolate cake. I love to do it and I want to do it and... And I struggle to find as much time as I can. So I guess, um, I guess in in some ways, in writing radical candor, the, the one of the biggest achievements of the book is just that simple two by two framework: care personally, challenge directly, with those four terms. I think it it sums up a lot of information pretty quickly. It's sort of like you know, business poetry or something. It really is business poetry. And, I think that's a good way to put it. It. <laughs> it, took me, it took me a silly amount of time to come up with those terms. Sometimes it's, the commas yeah, are, yeah. take a long time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were a, a couple of months where I was doing nothing other than wrestling with the axes and the terms and, and the two-by-two to the point that I felt, it felt self-indulgent and crazy, actually, to do it. Like I had left this high-paying job to... <laughs> To like spend two months wrestling with, you know, 
The quadrants, but you yeah. know, it, that's what happens. That's how it, that's how it goes. That's how it happens. Yeah, I think I think it does. So I was I'm proud of myself for persevering and not just succumbing to the feeling that you know. Oh yeah, I'm being, not making any money yeah, doing this. And I'm, yeah, 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 I'm hurting my family or whatever. So when and where are you the happiest as a writer? I am the happiest as a writer again in that first draft before I'm deep into editing, when I will, I'll, when I'm sitting in my office, in my home office, looking out over Silicon Valley, and I'll write for an hour and a half, and then I'll walk the dog for 45 minutes, and then I'll write for an hour and a half, and then I'll weed and talk on the phone for 45 minutes, and, um, and I'll do that, you know, I'll repeat that three or four times a day. I love, love spending my days that way. What's your motto as a writer? My motto, I don't think I have a motto as a writer. I guess if there's, if there's one thing, there was a woman named Lou Stanick who taught writing. She wrote a book called So You Want to Write a Novel, and she taught this class when I lived in New York. And she had over her computer, Show Don't Tell. Uh-huh. And that, Editors just put the, in, the acronym. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think about that all the time. And, and I don't just think about it when I'm writing, but I also, like the other day we were at the, we, we went to the symphony with the kids and somebody got up and had to leave, you know, walk through the aisle. And just the way that people stand up and walk in front of a bunch of people you could like you could, you could tell know their about whole them. personality yeah. yep. from that. I was like, that is like a. I'm going to use that. Yeah, uh, as a way to explain who somebody is. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good thing. So, did you have a notebook and you wrote it down? No, I. You know, I. For me and my career, I. I sort of feel like I made a breakthrough when I threw away my to do list because I was tyrannized by the to do list. And same thing with notebook as a writer. If I don't really, my, your mind is a filter, and if it's forgotten about it, because it's, it's, it's not, not that good, you gotta oh. let it go. You gotta okay. just let your brain do its thing. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So, do you have uh, a story re- related to an independent bookstore or independent bookseller? Yes, there was a there was a, a bookstore in Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up, called Pinocchio's. And it was in that bookstore that I really learned to love reading. And just my mother would take me there and I could browse and I could get whatever book I wanted. And there was, I really longed to travel. I don't know why when, when I was in second grade, I longed to travel so much, but I wanted to go places. And, and we didn't as a family really travel very much except to Florida. And so... And so there was, a, there is no frigate like a book. It was like written up there, and I realized, oh, I don't have to travel. I can just buy these books, and I can go anywhere I want to go. And that was so liberating uh, and sort of inspiring that I've I've loved books ever since. And and there's a bookstore. I live in in Los Altos, California, and there's a bookstore uh, called Linden Tree in Los Altos. And it's a great bookstore, just a, a lovely, lovely bookstore. And my kids are now in second grade, and I saw the exact same thing happen to them just actually, just probably a few months ago in November. I took them there, and I'd been taking them there, and I would always choose the books, and then I would read them the books. But this time, they chose the books on their own, and they 
we went home and they all crawled into bed and read for hours. It was just, it was such a, it was like a, it was a great moment. It's a great, it's a great feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for helping me with the radical candor and it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for talking to 20 people in, in two days. That's <laughs> yep. tiring. You kept your energy up well. I am, I'm very happy to speak to authors anytime, anyplace. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. All of the books you've heard mentioned here are available at your independent bookstore. And if you like what you've heard, please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents.